0: Good morning Northbrook. Our passage this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 17. Again, it's 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It was the golden age of painting. His work of art gave credence to the very definition of the era. He was an innovator, a true Renaissance man. His paintings utilized advanced techniques in three-dimensional media that forever changed the world of art and inspired generations to come. He's often referred to as the greatest storyteller that the world of painting has ever known. And this was because of his ability to literally tell the stories of his subjects that he painted. He had an uncanny ability to use light and shading that was well ahead of his time. In a day before cameras ever existed, he was famously sought after for painting portraits. One can only imagine the high demand for business that his abilities procured, especially amongst the wealthy upper classes. And yet, as is common in the world of arts today, his works are worth more now than they ever were then. Literally millions. He launched his art career in a bold move from his hometown of Leiden to Amsterdam, where he would benefit financially from a robust art market. Not only the center of the arts, at that time Amsterdam was in fact the commercial capital of Northern Europe. And in the early 1600s, it was the obvious move that this painter would make. Of course, with a family name like Tarmentzoon van Rijn, most folk simply referred to him by his first name, Rembrandt. You may have your cell phones and you've already been Googling Rembrandt. I encourage you to do so. I couldn't do that when I was your age. But you'll see a display of art that you'll readily recognize in this great painter, Other than literally hundreds of self-portraits that he painted of himself while gazing in a mirror, he's famous for other works as well. The golden age of painting would include his works titled The Night Watch, The Storm on the Sea, and of course, last but not least, The Return of the Prodigal. In this painting, he graphically tells the well-known biblical story as recorded in Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. I didn't do all the checking, but I think it's the longest, verbally, the longest parable that Jesus tells in his ministry. Thousands of words. If a picture paints a thousand words, then Rembrandt's depiction of the return of the prodigal is certainly proof of that. And you may not know it. I consider myself an ad hoc specialist in art. By now, you can tell, as humble as I am, that certainly I would be an authority. I brought a Rembrandt with me today. Thought I'd share it with you. This one, to me, is equally famous. It's my Rembrandt. You haven't met my daughter, she's an artist. This Rembrandt, with high-tech uh, ability and high-tech uh, features of three-dimensional art, rivaling that of Rembrandt, in a paint-by-number, she produced this family portrait. To me, is as good as any Rembrandt, wouldn't you think? It's as good as any Rembrandt. I brought a few other Rembrandts with me this morning. Wonder where I've put them. Oh, here they are. I've not put them in the PowerPoint because I wouldn't want anything to be posted on the internet with pictures of children in them. But here's a Christmas card I got from Ryan and Abby. It's a Rembrandt. Got the girls there, Lexa and McLean. another Rembrandt you may have received in the mail before Christmas this year. Here's one of the Stabels. And one of my favorites, they're here on the second row, but I've got the Godbeys right here wearing earmuffs. All four of them. <laughs> all Rembrandts. I didn't include in the slideshow either my wife Connie, but this one stays in my Bible, and it's my bookmark. I was going to include one too of Ali and Noor in a family photo that we had taken this year. Many of you have met our Afghani-American boys, and they're here on the second row as well. Every photo that you have and hold dear of your family is as valuable as any Rembrandt would be in yesteryear. I believe that here in Peter, the entire epistle paints a beautiful picture. And Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, paints a family portrait, a picture then and now of what the family of God is to look like. You can read all five chapters. I've done so many times in the last two weeks. He doesn't use the word church to describe us. He uses word pictures and various descriptions of the family of God. He understands the nature of what family is all about, and he references through the many descriptive words he chooses describing the body of Christ, how appropriately you and I, as the New Testament church then, are literally the family of God. 1 Peter could literally be described as a family portrait. Not only a family portrait, but a great picture of Jesus. It's in these verses that we find... Written some 30 years after the earthly ministry of Christ. Some of the boldest descriptions of what that family is all about. Probably written sometime in the 60s. In his earthly ministry, uh, Jesus now is depicted through various descriptions. And through a letter carrier, probably Silas, Peter communicates with the same churches that John refers to in the Revelation in that northwestern province of what is now modern-day Turkey. These churches would have been in that locale, and Peter encourages the audience of dispersed Jewish believers and proselyte Gentile believers. He encourages them by asserting their particular Christianity and their identity as Christians in the family of God. Exhorting them to love one another and then ultimately explaining to them the apparent inevitable tension that being a Christian will generate in a society that does not look tolerably on religious innovations. The worldview in that day and time with a Greek pantheon of gods would not applaud a savior like Jesus in fact, in, in their worldview, the gods often would intervene, interfere, even frustrate or cause suffering to humanity. And they would not appreciate a God who he himself suffered on behalf of humanity. Can you imagine the culture clash of the message of the gospel in those early years in such a culture. It would be ridiculous. In fact, Paul calls it the foolishness, doesn't he? The foolishness of the cross. And that it was in that day and time. In John chapter, uh, excuse me, in Peter 2, uh, verses 3 through 5, 1 Peter 2, 3 through 5, we, we see reference to his coming. Coming to him, a living stone, Peter says, rejected by men, but chosen by God. You yourselves, as living stones, he says, are being built into a spiritual household for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through jesus christ we're a building we're a family that is being built into a household of faith he refers in passages of scripture here in the second chapter isaiah 28 verse 16 i laid a stone in zion you're familiar with the passage chosen and honored yet rejected by men the one who believes in him will never be disappointed or will never be put to shame. In Psalm 118 and 22, the other reference in that second chapter of First Peter, the stone that the building, the builders rejected, has become the chief corner stone. Imagine, in Isaiah, written 750 years, before Christ and in Psalm, some 1000 years before Christ Peter now writes and he is named little pebble, little stone more appropriately Rocky son of Barjona I like to call him Rocky Johnson and he would have been as normal and as common as any Rocky Johnson in our day and time could be. Amen? Isn't it amazing That when God reaches into his toolbox, he doesn't go for the superstar, but he just goes for common folk like you and me. And he turns something that is little into something great. And it's not even about us. It's about him. That's where Peter is. If you could imagine, just go back in the cultural context for a moment. Peter is the guy who always had his mouth in front of his head. He was always stepping out and blurting out ahead of time what you and I might be thinking but might never say. Peter, he attempted to defend Jesus when it was not necessary. And this same Peter denied Jesus when it mattered the most. Think about it. He was as common and as normal as anybody might ever be. And God chooses Peter and says, you'll be called a rock. And on this type of faith, I'll build my church. And now some 30 years later, Peter, who literally denied Christ by God's design, has become one of the key leaders in the church. Not only a key leader, but he, through a mighty vision that was miraculous, began to understand that people like Cornelius and his household, people who weren't even of the Jewish heritage, they had an equal place and a spot in the history of Christianity and in the life of the church. And it's literally a miracle that we don't wear little beanies on the back of our heads, men. It's a miracle that we don't wear those little beanies on the back of our heads to church every Sunday. 2,000 years after Christ because by God's design with people like Peter and James and John and a huge throng of others, 500 who were at his ascension, a spark was lit and a church would be born that would never be relegated to a mere sect of Judaism. That's a miracle, amen? Don't you get excited to think that a new Israel exists today in essence we've replaced, or added to, grafted in however you want to look at it, we have become the new Israel. We who believe in Christ, born of a virgin, sent of God, sacrificed his life, rose again, appeared to disciples, and ascended to heaven. That's the Jesus that we're known for when we're called Jesus people, little Christians, little Christ Christians. That's who we represent. In this epistle, Peter addresses three main features. And just in a broad overview, as Jake shared, re-engaging Peter now and moving through the the next several weeks, he names salvation and the theology of our faith, the family of God, and then Christian life and behavior. Here in this text in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17, he paints a very vivid picture of, of the family of God look at the words that he uses in the brushstrokes of every word and every verse from the first chapter to the last chosen by God set apart by the spirit new birth believers who belong to God now protected by God's power Imagine, protected by God's power. You've got a corner on the market of divine protection in struggles that you face in this world when you face them in Christ. Amen? I don't believe you. Amen? Amen. Can you get excited? We've got extra power. We've got divine power that protects us as His people. Holy in conduct, He says, living stones. A chosen race. A royal priesthood, slaves, servants of God, sheep who've now returned to a shepherd, members of the family of God, who by the way are not surprised by any fiery ordeal of suffering for doing good. Peter says with another brushstroke, that we are to be a blessing to others who need to come into the fold. And we are blessed because we are members of that fold. And we all need to be aware, he reminds us in chapter 4, that judgment, judgment literally begins with the family of God in end times. And Peter raises the question, if it begins with us and that alone is difficult, what will it be for those who are not in the fold? One of the closing questions of this epistle. It's a portrait of a Christian family individually. It's a portrait of a local church family. And it's a portrait of a kingdom heavenly family yet to be realized in its fullness. The context is very interesting. Peter was a fisherman after all on the shores of Galilee. And now he's living out the promise that he would be made into a fisherman, a fisher. Of men he attempts to defend Jesus and fails and yet he's restored by Jesus and becomes a primary leader in the church the inclusion of the Gentile the faith that it takes to literally change culture in a culture clash then that's equal to the culture clashes that we face today in our own society how appropriate would this message have been to the church in the early 60s and how appropriate it is to every believer sitting here today and the church in general in 2023. Very appropriate very timely. His name, we've already mentioned, was changed by Jesus himself from Peter to Cephas, or to Simon, excuse me, to Peter, or Cephas, All throughout Biblical history, we see evidence of God changing people's names. You know, Abraham was Abram, Sarah was Sarai, Paul was Saul. (laughs) On and on the list can go, from the patriarchs through every chapter of the scriptures to the final stroke of the Revelation, we see names changed. And whenever we see a name changed in Scripture, we know that it's because of a significant event and because of a significant ministry that God will use that individual in to change literally the course and the direction, not only of history, but of His church. The audience, the elect or chosen, temporarily dispersed, we're told. The recipients of God's grace, Peter says. Peter has expanded his understanding. He has morphed. He's evolved. He's grown. And now he understands so much more clearly who the church really is. And this royal priesthood chosen of God literally has replaced the epicenter of, of a Judeo-Christian faith from Jerusalem now to Antioch and the world. It has dramatically affected who we are today. He speaks of the true beauty of the inner life of submission and undeserved suffering all through these five chapters. He speaks to the topic of suffering throughout the same. And then finally, the timing of his message appropriate, just as relevant today as it was yesteryear. I had the privilege of having five months to prepare for this message. And so I got to ask a few people who don't normally get to come up here and preach what they think of the passage. Now, we all know that Ginger writes Jake's sermons. I've got what she said to this question. (laughs) Where's Ginger? Wave at me. It's all right. She'll forgive me for teasing. Ginger's input to three simple questions I asked what do you like most about these verses? What can we affirm about God's character or nature from these verses? And what promises can we claim from this passage? Here's what your pastor's wife says. I love the clarity of what is good and how to literally walk in it. All of this, and these are her words, not mine, all of this is a picture of Jesus And how he lived and wants us to live. Amen? She says that we can see from this passage of scripture that God is good and trustworthy. And that he's against evil. Finally, in answer to the promise, Ginger says that God stands for good and is against evil. We can trust him when we suffer for his name. And he sees and cares about all our suffering. I love it. My wife, another member of the GOAT team, Ginger was on that team too this last semester, Connie said that God uses uncertainty and hardship, even suffering, to chase us out into the open where we can find him all over again. To chase us out into the open, to flush the covey, if you will. And we find God all over again. A quote of Bob Nost. Andrew is here this morning. (laughs) He had the privilege of giving input to the dispatches. He said, I like that I can trust God and know that he's in control even in my suffering. He gives grace to the humble, opposes the proud, and listen to this, God is eager to hear our prayers and bless us Especially when he knows that we're suffering. Finally, Andrew shared, when we bless rather than curse, we're blessed. What a paradox. When we bless rather than curse, we just get more back. We're blessed. The key promise is that this should motivate us to do the right thing when doing the right thing is not popular or convenient or profitable. Think about it. I love what Reed shared. I've known Reed for a while. Uh, we got the lead in part of their wedding. I was telling Jake that I, I did the worst thing in that wedding. I referred to his unmarried sister-in-law who was in her mid-30s and told a 1,000 people that she was available. I did that only the way that I could do it. Uh, so no one would ever live it down. But G- Reed and Edna have forgiven me, uh, and uh, I had his input. Serving here as an elder and as a brother in Christ we've known for years. Reed says, we've got to remember, at this point in the development of the early church, Christianity, we must take note, there already existed a type of household code. His words, not mine. A household code of unity of understanding and conviction of the gospel. We call it a brotherhood. It can be a sisterhood too, right? A brotherhood. We've seen today the effect of a brotherhood when a football player is literally dying on the field and within three days later, all football players all over the world, pro, college, and down to Pop Warner League, they can affirm a brotherhood that only a football player really knows and understands. That's type of that's the type of uh, achievement of attachment and and common bond of unity that the church has at this point. Peter has grown miles in his understanding of what church is all about. He tried walking on water and he did for a few steps, but then he got his hair wet. You remember. Now, he walks out of prison with an angel leading the way, and he doesn't even look back. Peter would, would get everything wrong, and now, even in his humanity, he's getting it right. He has grown so much in his faith. Jordan and Morgan are here. By divine appointment, Jordan and I met, uh, Connie and I were with him about seven years ago. We've not only become lifelong friends, but Jordan and I are accountability partners. We talk every week. I think we talk every week, don't we? I asked Jordan to meditate on this passage of Scripture. Listen to what Jordan said. As an ambassador, if you're not suffering for your faith in any way at all, then your faith is probably invisible. As an ambassador of Christ... If you're not suffering for your faith at all, then your faith is probably invisible. Boy, did that touch my heart. I had to go deep and really reflect about what my accountability partner really meant on that one. Persecution can actually help bring clarity to our mission, Jordan said. And finally, the promise that God is faithful to redeem us and give us the reward for being faithful in suffering. Straight out of the Bible. Mike Thompson, McLean's dad, we've become friends. He says in this passage of scripture, we encounter God's principle resulting from our conduct in the here and now and the promise of what we may expect in the yet to come. Mike Thompson. I love it. Here and now and yet to come. Eddie Contreras was in the men's Bible study. Many of us got to know Eddie and Stephanie. Ed says, God himself made a promise to us. Wait, replay that. God himself made a promise to us. Wait, let me say it again. God himself made a promise to us. Isn't that amazing? It's not about us. It's all about him. But it begins with the understanding that God has our best intention at heart, and he made a promise to us. Brian Dozer said basically the same, and I could quote from several others, but we must move on. This passage of Scripture is so appropriate for our day and time because it teaches us that in God's design... For discipleship, suffering plays a significant role in our ultimate growth and in God's unrivaled glory. Our suffering today, designed by God as part of his holy economy, is for our good and for his glory. And it will happen. I love the quote that Connie shared with me earlier about hardships and trials, flushing us out, So we can find him all over again. Of course, we're not talking about suffering for the consequences of poor choices, suffering for evil, or suffering for selfish decisions that we've made. Now, those sufferings can be turned to good. But the Bible makes a key distinction. We're talking about suffering for righteousness. Suffering for the namesake of Christ. Key definition, and we see several things. We could face ridicule, we could face ostracism, we could face even personal uh, persecution or assault, and then ultimately, even divine affront, where spiritual battle over the very souls of men are being waged and our soul as well in a hardship or a suffering that Job teaches us about or that others that we've read about, of renowned teach us in life. Three quick things I'd like to point out in the passage of scripture, and they're real simple. First, there's a discipleship through our suffering. Second, there's a display of our suffering uh, in suffering. There's a display to be had in suffering. And finally, there's a defense in our suffering that is very important for us to understand. First of all, in the discipleship through suffering, and we don't like to think of suffering as part of our discipleship walk. We like to talk about our prayer prayer life and how many calluses we may or may not have on our knees, but we don't want to talk about suffering. We really don't want any part of it. We tend to shy away from suffering, but God's designed for suffering to grow us into the likeness of Christ. Two things, in suffering, giving a blessing, and receiving a blessing. That is part of our discipleship walk. In verse 8, you can see it there. Now, finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers, be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, giving a blessing. You see, according to verse 8, our composure, our composure as the family of God is what Peter is describing. And there's a great sequence we see in Scripture. And it doesn't matter whether it's God-inspired writing from Peter or Paul or James or any of the gospel writers. We see this sequence woven throughout the text of every part of the New Testament. And it's this. Believe, belong, become, behave and beware. Believe, belong, become behave and beware why is that important I can remember as a child in the 70s what I was expected to do to be considered a Christian and a lot of times church attendance was more of an obligation because I thought my behavior was more important than anything else that I might do to be seen as a Christian you know when you get the cart before the horse if it's behavior or performance-based, uh, performance-based uh, love, you end up with legalism. Now, a lot of brick-and-mortar churches today are filling the pews with people who have an obligation to be there even though they'd rather be on the golf course. They may feel an obligation to tithe or to give because somebody's watching. But you get the sequence out of place And you put behavior before belief or belong, and it all gets out of whack. Amen? I think you know what I'm talking about. Let me see your head's nod. You grew up with performance-based relationships and performance-based love. We're all usually masters of that, whether we recognize it or not. And it doesn't mean your parents were evil, for goodness sakes. But none of us are perfect. I can compliment my child, and the message he might get is, when you behave that way, I love you. That's the grounds for performance-based relationship that I don't intend to speak into his life, but after 21 years with a son that's angry with me and now hasn't talked for four years to me or my wife, do you think there's some pain there and that I haven't looked back at maybe how I could have done things differently? Amen. Do you hear what I'm saying? We have to get our belief right, not only being biblically literate, But we have to get our heart right about why we believe what we believe. And then when we have that in place, it makes sense to belong. And we want to be there. And our behavior becomes modified by Him living in us and His power over our sin that has now no dominion. We're still in the the now and not yet, but we're becoming more like Christ. We watch our behavior out of love for a Savior, and then we're aware that we'll be held accountable, and we're aware that he's coming. Let me hear an amen. Amen. I didn't hear you. Let me hear an amen. It's time to finish, so let me hear you. Amen. 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 Giving a blessing and receiving a blessing. Verse 9 talks about the purpose of life and focusing on a future inheritance. We should be living out our faith with the idea, man, all this in heaven, too all this in heaven too. Psalm 34, 12 through 16 is the reference here. The context David is writing in as he faces Abimelech and the threat from out. He's delivered by the Lord. He looks and he uses words, see and taste and listen, delight, pursue peace, he says broken-hearted and contrite spirit that takes refuge only in the Lord has echoes of Psalm 51 when David was confronted by his own sin. I love that. Pursue peace. Run for it. Pant for it. You can't have the peace of God without knowing the God of peace. You can't have it. You cannot have the peace of God Without knowing the God of peace. You know what's interesting? We can look all through the Bibles to try to define salvation, and we all turn to John chapter 3 and verse 16. Nothing wrong with it. Believe it 100%. But the greatest definition of salvation found in the Bible, I believe, is a few chapters later. In the high priestly prayer, John 17 and verse 3, Jesus himself says that salvation is this, knowing God and the one who he has sent. If you don't know God through Christ, you don't have peace within yourself. You certainly are not at peace with God and you are not called a little Christ, a Christian. Knowing God is salvation. Giving a blessing, receiving a blessing. And then in Isaiah eight twelve we have that second reference. Don't fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah. This is another passage of scripture that Peter uses to shed light on the painting of the family of God. The judgment of God upon the people of Israel who aligned themselves with the idolatrous worship of pagan gods against a Syrian Assyrian invasion. Oh, that was then. We'd never do that now. We we never do that, do we? You see, it was kind of like they knew their history. They knew that they had been uh, delivered by God out of Egypt. They'd been to Sunday school. They heard all the stories, the parting of the Reds. Every, they knew that. But just in case, to cover all my tracks, I'm going to go ahead and in- incorporate this good luck charm over here and this amulet here and this god of fertility here. And so they were incorporating just to be safe, everything else and God, too, to have the basis covered. We would never do that today. How many good believers I know in South America don't cross their heart every time they pass a graveyard so that something bad doesn't happen to them? We do this. We do this, too. Fear the Lord and only the Lord. Align ourselves with Him. Alignment for his honor. Allegiance to his honor. And the assignment of our uh, victory and honor only to God in his glory. Only him. Finally, in three, not only do we talk about the discipleship of our suffering. And we can consider also the discipleship that comes with a display of God's glory, but ultimately the defense in our suffering that Peter mentions in verse 15b through 17, the defense of our suffering. We can do this in three simple ways. But honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts when... I can't hear you. When? Verse 15b. Honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts when always let me hear you say always 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 be ready to what give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason we've been in the go group this last semester and we've all come to agree that sharing our faith is more than just preaching at someone usually, maybe 90% of the time, is simply living a life out that gives a defense for the faith in the first place. And we honor him this way. Standing for truth, speaking the truth, and serving the truth. Standing for truth, speaking the truth, serving the truth. Much more easily said than done. Amen? Amen? Much more easily said than done. Stand for truth when it's really easier to sit on the sidelines. Get in the game. Stand for truth. Speak the truth. Oh, this one comes down. When it's safer, when it's safer to be silent, especially overseas, where there are definite consequences for sharing your faith, serving the truth, serving the truth when it's more advantageous to serve ourselves instead. When it's more advantageous for what we might gain by staying on the sidelines. The defense in our suffering is the defense of God's message of truth and righteousness. That's why the scriptures say, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. It's his kingdom that must be first. If you're the type of person that likes to take notes, then maybe what's worth writing down are these timeless truths as we close today. Timeless truths for the day that we share. Number one, living the Christian life is not easy, but it's very rewarding. It's not easy, but rewarding. Connie reminded me this morning as we were driving to church that all but one of the disciples Tradition tells us died a violent martyr's death. It's not easy living a Christian life, but it's definitely rewarding. Two, God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. His life was given, not taken. It's free grace, but it cost him everything. Three, The stewardship of our suffering allows God to reveal His purposes, power, and precepts through our lives. It allows God to display and to reveal His purposes, His power, His precepts through our lives. It's as if we are a billboard of advertisement and God uses us as billboards for Jesus. Amen? Don't you want to be a billboard for Christ? Oftentimes that billboard is hanging on suffering. And it hinges on our composure. It hinges on our behavior in that suffering. Here's one. Our testimony through suffering affords us the opportunity to show His glory, to share His grace, and to shine forth his great love to the lost. When we suffer, it's like a platform to speak from without even saying a word. It might be in a hospital, on a deathbed. It might be at work in the struggles of keeping up. No matter what it is, it affords us the opportunity to show his glory, share his grace, and shine forth his love. Connie told me, And I'll not forget this one. In God's economy, we have to understand that a broken world awaits His light that is shining within you. A broken world awaits His light that is shining within you. And finally, and this one hurts, when we fail, when you fail, when I fail, when we as a church fail, when we as a kingdom, a body of believers fail, to submit ourselves to God's will in suffering and surrender that suffering for the sake of the kingdom and the kingdom purposes, we literally rob God of glory. When we fail to submit our suffering and we fail to surrender That to his agenda instead of ours. We're robbing God of glory. In conclusion, I would share with you that in the economy of suffering, those who are wandering in darkness can be literally drawn to his light. Wasn't it Jesus who said that the Son of Man must be lifted up and by it all men could be drawn to him? Without Jesus' suffering... There could be no forgiveness of sin. And without his suffering, you and I wouldn't be here today. Our suffering equally can be used by Christ in a mighty way to extend his grace and his love to a helpless and a dying world. One of my favorite country songs, Tracy Lawrence. Paint Me a Birmingham. How many of you know the song? Oh, I love country music because you can actually hear the words. (laughs) If you're from my generation, that's very important. (laughs) Paint Me a Birmingham. Song begins walking on the sand early one morning. Beautiful day happens upon a painter. And through the paintbrushes and the strokes and the colors, he vividly draws out on canvas what literally you see in real life. And he does it so masterfully that the singer asked him, could you paint something for me? Of course, we know the answer. For $20, I can paint you anything. The refrain, could you paint me a Birmingham? Make it look just the way I planned a little house on the edge of town, porch going all the way around. Put her there in the front yard swing. Cotton dress, make it early spring. For a while she'll be mine again if you can paint me a Birmingham. I love the second verse. We see the artist who very, very poignantly says, as he takes a canvas from the bag, so just where in this picture would you like to be? The answer I said, if there's a way you can, could you paint me back into her arms again? It's a song that's a story, and it's a story of love that was lost. It's the same type of story that Rembrandt paints when he paints the return of the prodigal, a love that was lost, a love that God yearns to have back. Truth is, by the way we read the Bible today, with a brush of a stroke, you can paint yourself right back into that picture. We can be painted into the family of God with a simple step of faith that allows that love that was lost to be ours again. And that's exactly what Rembrandt had in mind as he painted that famous painting as well. question would be, where do you see yourself in the picture? In this family portrait? And where would you like to be? Let me ask you to bow your heads, and as we do we'll be closing our time out in a brief time of meditation that will lead us into uh, Pastor Jake and leading us through the the elements of the Lord's Supper. But as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you'll concentrate just for a moment longer on a family portrait, a family portrait known as the church today, you might be here today really having come to the full awareness of belief that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And you actually have come to the point of understanding and believing that this virgin-born son of God is the very author of life and faith. We would encourage you today, if that's you, to seek out Pastor Jake or Randy or any of our elders or or anyone you, you know and love in this fellowship. And really confirm what you've come to believe and understand about Jesus. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, you could be here today already having firmly fixed your faith as a believer in Christ, but you've come to the point of decision where you understand it really is time to join a local fellowship. This church, like Jake said earlier, they'd love to discuss with you what that might look like. And there's your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Perhaps you're here like me, and you're struggling with a broken relationship Maybe you're struggling with a hardship that no one really could even understand. You want your composure to be that of a saint, and yet it's obvious that, like me, you're a sinner. You're fighting a battle that has you left feeling so isolated, so lonely. You just need to talk with someone, pray with someone, journey with someone we would encourage you to seek out Pastor Jake or Randy, any of our elders or brothers and sisters in Christ who might be here today and not let your loneliness and your isolated feeling fight that battle alone. Father, as we close out our time in your word but continue in worship of you as the living word, we relinquish our right. We give up our right to be first to be right, to be the center of attention. We surrender our suffering to you, Jesus, and we leave them there at the foot of the cross so that you can do what only you do in our lives and paint us back into a picture that you intend and that you have planned for our good. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, Jesus, we worship you and we trust you as the word has been shared by a family, for a family. And we thank you, Jesus, that you've included us in your family too. Amen.